Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, you'll get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway. That's a $72 value per year. No other provider offers this. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Could It Be True? Volume 1, Urban Legends by Cindy Parmeter, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Urban legends are thought by most to be tall tales passed down through the ages. Some of the stories are obviously make-believe, while others, as strange as they may seem, have their origins in actual events. Do alligators roam the dark tunnels deep beneath New York City? Do boogeymen who terrorize those afraid of the night really exist? Are killer clowns a myth born from our fear of the unknown, or could such evil truly walk among us? These are just a few of the urban legends that are explored in this audiobook. After hearing some of the history for yourself, maybe you will be able to answer the age-old question, could it be true? Could it be true? Volume 1 Urban Legends by Cindy Parmeter. Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Here a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Imagine, it's an ordinary day. You're walking down a street that you know very well, and suddenly you feel that something stops you from taking a step forward. There is no visible obstacle standing in your way, and yet you can't move forward. It seems like you've encountered an invisible barrier that simply doesn't allow you to pass. Does it sound strange? In fact, it may sound like an almost impossible scenario, yet there are several cases of people who have reported such encounters. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself a part of the Weirdo family, please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode with your friends, family, and others on your social media and thanks in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… The crew completely vanished from the ship, 
with no explanation yet to be found. You would think I'd be talking about the legendary Mary Celeste, but there is another ship that suffered a similar fate. In 1921, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was the highest-paid actor-comedian in the world, but before the year was out, he was accused of a crime so monstrous that he would never appear on screen again. A cabin in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, a strange figure barely visible in the darkness. It could almost be the setup for a horror movie, aside from the fact that it was real for one man. Insanity, tragedy, and death. And that's just the start of what you'll find at Loftus Hall, Ireland's most haunted residence. And people around the world are reporting an odd phenomenon of walking and suddenly striking what could only be described as an invisible barrier, like a transparent wall. Are the reports true? And if so, what is causing this? We begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Walking into an invisible barrier? You may never have heard of such a thing, but it is not a modern phenomenon. Peculiar encounters with invisible barriers can be traced to biblical times. Some of the curious reports come from witnesses who have caught glimpses from what can be described as parallel realities. If parallel worlds do exist, and most scientists suggest they do, then it's possible that invisible worlds coexisting next to our own reality may be responsible for the emergence of occasional barriers that are invisible to our naked eye. In more modern times, it has also been suggested that mysterious rays and energy fields are causing the appearance, no pun intended, of invisible barriers. Such energy fields could explain why a perfect engine suddenly dies in the middle of the road. It could also explain why animals and humans are unable to pass beyond a point in the road. In the Bible, Numbers chapter 22, verses 21 through 39, there is a story describing how Balaam, a sorcerer, was summoned by King Balak of the Moabites to curse the Israelites as Moses was leading them toward Canaan. Balaam's donkey refused on three occasions to follow the path, and nothing could force it to walk any further. The biblical explanation is that the donkey saw an angel standing in the way and tried to avoid it. Suddenly, the donkey starts to talk and complains about Balaam's treatment. At this point, Balaam is allowed to see the angel of the Lord standing in its path. The angel tells Balaam that the donkey is the only reason the angel did not kill Balaam. It is an interesting account showing there could be entities in our material world that are not always visible to everyone at the same time. Putting the biblical story aside, 
It should be noted that this strange encounter was just one of many similar that have been recorded throughout history. There are many reports of encounters with time portals and people who have caught glimpses from the past. Such incidents have happened worldwide for as long as anyone can remember. Brief sightings of phantom ancient armies are also not unusual, especially not in the United Kingdom and France where several cases have been reported. One curious incident involving a sighting of a long-gone vanished army and encounter with an invisible barrier took place in 1960 on a road near Otterburn, Northumberland. This place is of great historical importance, and many battles have been fought in the area. One of them was the Battle of Flodden that occurred in September of 1513. The battle has gone into the history books as the largest encounter between England and Scotland. There are several witnesses who say they have seen a phantom army near the site. One of them was taxi driver Dorothy Strong, who reported her car came to a total stop when the phantom army appeared. Suddenly, the engine died, the fare meter went haywire, and the taxi felt as if it was being forced against an invisible wall. The soldiers seemed to close in on us, then fade into thin air, she reported. According to other people, it's not unusual that one can encounter an invisible barrier around that location. A similar incident took place in Saxon, Germany. In 1930, as many as 40 cars stalled simultaneously on one road. None of them were able to restart again for an hour. What could have caused such engine disturbance? There were discussions that secret rays were responsible for these mysterious accidents, but who or what were producing these rays has never been determined. Those who believe in the existence of unseen beings inhabiting our world will find that there are many accounts of invisible barriers associated with fairies. According to an ancient tradition of the stray sod, there is a patch of soil on which fairies have placed a spell. Anyone who steps on this enchanted ground has great difficulty finding his way off it. I was up in the mountains with my dad and my dog for a long weekend. We rented a tiny little scenic cabin made almost entirely of glass. The door didn't even lock. Right next to the house, basically the backyard, was a small river. On the other side was a cement dam. It flowed under the small road that was nearby. It was also in a ravine where there were giant mountains all around and we were at the bottom. We hung out until nighttime, then went to sleep. Around one in the morning, my dog woke me up because he needed to go outside. It was really cold, so I got all bundled up and put his leash on. I also grabbed a flashlight because there were absolutely no light sources outside. I went out past the deck into the grass right next to the river and turned my light on. I moved my light all along the edge of the mountain. Suddenly, I saw something on the dam on the other side of the river, and I did a double take. A man was standing on the dam. I guess he was a man. 
He didn't have a face and was dressed all in black. He wasn't far away at all. We stared at each other for a while. He didn't react at all to my shining the light directly into his eyes, or where his eyes would have been at least. After a minute, I did the stupidest, most horror movie cliché thing ever. I called out, Hello? I thought he might have been ice fishing or walking his dog, but when he didn't move or respond, I realized he wasn't doing either of those things. I booked it back inside. I jammed a chair under the door handle, but I knew there wasn't much I could really do since the whole house was made of glass. I woke up my dad. He's legally blind and so it took him forever to get his glasses. Finally, he looked outside. He said he saw the man. I thought I might have been going totally nuts, but he didn't know what to do either. And he went back to bed. I didn't know what to do either and I thought about calling the police, but what would the police do? The man wasn't technically doing anything wrong. He was not on our property or hurting anyone, yet at least, so I couldn't call them. I just watched out the window. He stared straight at me for hours. He actually moved and turned toward my window. After about two hours, he walked back up the hill and down the road. I was so relieved. I thought he was gone. I went to get a glass of water and on the way past the window, there he was, right back on the dam. He stayed there for another hour or so. Then came the part that was truly supernatural. He walked a few feet towards a tree, but never went past it. Instead, one leg and one arm swung forward, then smoothly slid back behind the tree, over and over again. It looked like his pants and jacket had been stuck to the tree and were reacting to strong bursts of wind, but there was no wind to speak of. After that, he disappeared around five in the morning. I still don't know what happened or what that was. I thought for a while about it being a slender man, but it doesn't exactly fit the bill. It wasn't tall and skinny enough. There was definitely a supernatural aspect to it, though. In 1921, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was the highest paid actor in the world. He had recently signed a deal with Paramount Pictures for a whopping $1 million, or about $13 million today, an unheard of sum at the time. Posters for his movies billed the 266-pound comedian as worth his weight in laughs. But before the year was out, he was accused of a crime so monstrous that he would never appear on screen again. The conflicting accounts, tabloid exaggerations, and general furor surrounding the crime that ended Arbuckle's acting career make it difficult to determine what exactly happened that fateful day. Even today, publications re-examining the scandal often come to completely different conclusions regarding Arbuckle's guilt or innocence. Virtually the only indisputable facts seem to be that on September 5, 1921, 
there was a party at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco where alcohol was in abundance, despite prohibition laws, and that both Arbuckle, then age 33, and a woman named Virginia Rapp were in attendance. Then at some point during the revelry, Arbuckle and Rapp were briefly in the same hotel room together. But when Arbuckle left the room, Rapp remained lying on the bed, writhing in pain. Four days later, she was dead of a ruptured bladder. What fueled the scandal at the time, and what has remained a mystery ever since, is just what role, if any, Arbuckle played in Rapp's death. Another partygoer soon accused him of raping and killing her, and he was tried three different times for those crimes. But the first two trials ended with hung juries, and the third ended with an acquittal. Nevertheless, the controversy surrounding his possible guilt and the case as a whole continues on. Virginia Rapp was a 26-year-old aspiring actress and model, originally from Chicago, who had a reputation as something of a party girl. During the party in question, witnesses recalled that an intoxicated Rapp complained she could not breathe and then started to tear off her clothes. And this was not the first instance of Virginia Rapp stripping while intoxicated. One newspaper even dubbed her an amateur call girl who used to get drunk at parties and start to tear her clothes off. Rapp's detractors used this as evidence of her wild ways, while her defenders point out that she had a bladder condition that was exacerbated by alcohol and used to cause her such discomfort that she would drunkenly take off her clothes in an attempt to alleviate her condition. And as for the events of September 5, 1921, the accounts of the night vary wildly. According to party guest Maude Delmont, after a few drinks, Arbuckle strong-armed Virginia Rapp into his room with the sinister utterance, I've waited for you five years and now I've got you. After 30 minutes or so, Delmont became concerned upon hearing screams from behind the closed door of Arbuckle's room and started knocking. Arbuckle answered the door wearing his foolish screen smile and Rapp was on the bed, naked and moaning in pain. Delmont claims that Rapp managed to gasp Arbuckle did it before she was taken away into a different hotel room. Arbuckle, however, testified that he had gone into his bathroom and found Rapp already there on the floor, vomiting. After helping her onto the bed, he and several other guests summoned the hotel doctor, who determined that Rapp was just heavily intoxicated and took her into another hotel room to sleep it off. Whatever happened that night, Virginia Rapp's condition had still not improved three days afterward. It was then that she was taken to a hospital where doctors originally thought she had alcohol poisoning from the bootleg liquor. But as it turned out, she had peritonitis, resulting from a ruptured bladder likely caused by her pre-existing condition. The ruptured bladder and peritonitis are what killed her the next day, September 9, 1921. But at the hospital, Delmont told police that Rapp had been raped by Arbuckle at the party, and on September 11, 1921, the comedian was arrested. Newspapers across the country went wild. 
Some claimed that the overweight Arbuckle had damaged Rapp's liver by crushing her while trying to have sex with her, while others offered up increasingly outrageous stories, consisting of various depravities supposedly carried out by the actor. Both Arbuckle and Rapp's names were dragged through the mud in the competition to print the most salacious rumors. Publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst gleefully noted that the scandal had sold more papers than the sinking of the Lusitania. By the time Arbuckle went to trial for manslaughter, his public reputation was already ruined. Delmont was never actually called to the stand because prosecutors knew her testimony would never hold up in court due to her ever-changing stories. Nicknamed Madam Black, Delmont already had a reputation for procuring girls for Hollywood parties, using those girls to instigate scandalous acts and then blackmailing celebrities anxious to keep those acts quiet. It also didn't help Delmont's credibility that she had sent telegrams to attorneys saying, quote, "...we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make some money out of him." Unquote. Meanwhile, although Arbuckle's lawyers showed that the autopsy had concluded that there were no marks of violence on the body, no signs that the girl had been attacked in any way, and various witnesses corroborated the actor's version of events, it took three trials before Arbuckle was acquitted after the first ended with hung juries. But by this time, the scandal had so devastated Arbuckle's career that the jury who acquitted him felt obliged to read an apologetic statement that concluded with, quote, we wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame, unquote. But it was already too late. Hollywood's highest-paid star was now box office poison. His movies were pulled from cinemas, and he never worked on screen again. Arbuckle was able to stay in film by doing some directing, but even behind the camera, his career had no chance of finding its footing. He died of a heart attack in 1933 at the age of 46, having never fully restored his reputation. On the morning of January 31, 1921, the Carol A. Deering, a beautiful, huge five-masted schooner, was found hard aground on Hatteras Diamond Shoals, North Carolina. The crew was nowhere to be found. Abandoned and deserted, with all of its eleven crewmen missing, the circumstances are as strange as those of the Mary Celeste and her demise remains as one of the greatest unsolved maritime mysteries of all time. Her sails were up and the galley showed evidence that a meal was about to be prepared. The crew's personal effects were gone, along with the ship's navigational equipment, logbooks, and life rafts. Also mysteriously missing were the eleven crew members of the vessel. Christened Carol A. Deering, the schooner was built in 1919 by the G.G. Deering Company, said to be the oldest active shipbuilder in the country at the time. 
The Deering was also the last of nearly 100 boats built by the G.G. Deering Company. Described as being a tremendous ship, measuring 255 feet long and 45 feet across, the Deering was designed for cargo service. Only the best stock was used in constructing this three-deck vessel. Her features included an oak ceiling and planking of hard pine. A handsome combination of mahogany, empress, and ash woods were used to finish the interior. Oregon masts measuring 108 feet long with top masts measuring 46 feet long flanked the vessel. Other luxurious features included a bathroom with open plumbing and cabins fully lit by electricity and heated by steam. Indeed, she was a wooden boat enthusiast's dream. Mrs. Carol Deering stood at the bow of the ship and christened it using a large bouquet of roses which she scattered as the vessel made its descent down the ways. The Carol A. Deering schooner was being prepared to sail from Boston to Buenos Aires, then on to Rio de Janeiro. In charge of the voyage would be part owner and captain William M. Merritt, who chose his son, S.E. Merritt, as his first mate. Nine other Scandinavian men were hired as crew. On August 20, 1920, they set sail for Boston. Later that same month, after sailing from Boston, Captain Merritt became ill and the vessel was diverted to port in Lewes, Delaware. After determining that the captain was too ill to continue the voyage, he was left in Lewes. His son, E.E. Merritt, also disembarked the ship to care for his father. Left without a captain and first mate, the Deering Company hastily hired replacements for the positions. Captain Willis T. Warmel, a veteran retired shipmaster and experienced navigator, was chosen as the new captain. He hired Charles B. Malellan as his first mate. On September 8, 1920, the Deering finally got underway for Rio de Janeiro with a cargo of coal. The vessel arrived without incident and the crew was given time off. In the meantime, Captain Warmel met with an old friend, also a captain. Warmel confided in him that he does not like his crew and the behavior of his first mate concerns him. They agree that the ship's engineer, Bates, can be trusted. On their return trip from Rio de Janeiro, a series of events occurred, ultimately ending with the Carol A. Deering running aground. Here is the timeline of events in the final voyage. January 9, 1921, the vessel set sail for Portland, Maine. January 25th, another ship, the SS Hewitt, with a crew of 42, disappears from the same area while sailing on a similar course as the Deering. She was last heard from on this date. January 29th, Carol A. Deering reported having passed Cape Lookout Lightship, sailing at 5 miles per hour. A man on board got the attention of the passing ship and said the vessel had lost both anchors and asked if he could report it to its owners. The crewman did not act or look like an officer. Shortly after, a passing steamer was asked to stop by the lightship to take the message for the schooner. It is a maritime law to respond to the whistles of the lightship. However, the steamer, whose ship name could not be seen, did not stop and continued sailing on. January 31, 1921. 
the Carol A. Deering is spotted with all sails set, riding a sandbar at Diamond Shoals. According to the official report, she was driven high up on the shoal in a boiled bed of breakers with all sails set, as if abandoned in a hurry. All personal effects belonging to the crew were gone, along with all of the ship's navigational instruments and the lifeboats. Rescue ships were unable to board the ship due to bad weather, and it was not until February 4th that the ship was boarded. The Coast Guard attempted to salvage the vessel but was unsuccessful. The Carol A. Deering was eventually scuttled with dynamite on March 4th. Despite an extensive investigation by the U.S. government that included the Commerce, Treasury, Justice, Navy, and State Departments, no explanation could be found for the crew's disappearance. There were a number of theories considered by the U.S. government during their investigation that included piracy, mutiny, a hurricane, a Russian or communist piracy, rum runners, or an unexplained paranormal event. The investigation finally wound down and came to an end in 1922, with no official explanation ever being found. Keep listening, there's more Weird Darkness to come. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. I've been telling you for months now about how much I love MyPillow, the one that I received from them, but why don't we hear what a Weird Darkness family member has to say about it? Here's what Mike had to say. Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck, my pillow sounded worth trying. Another great recommendation from you. I ordered two queen-size my pillows, put them in the dryer for 15 minutes before their first use, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. I'm thinking of ordering the my pillow dog bed for my dog buddy. Hey, he deserves a luxurious sleep too. You have the best sponsors. Thank you for sharing my pillow with us. You know, Mike said he received two queen-size my pillows. That's because he heard about them right here in Weird Darkness. We've got a special for just the weirdo family members. That would be you. You can get two premium my pillows for one low price. Go to mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. That's mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Or again, MyPillow.com. Be sure to use the promo code WEIRD. Driving along the isolated road that runs down the scenic Hook Peninsula in Ireland's ancient east, it is easy to spot the mansion that has earned itself the reputation as the most haunted house in Ireland. If ever a building fit the stereotype of a home haunted by its bloody and tragic past, this was it. Set against the backdrop of a rugged and windswept coastal setting, Loftus Hall looms over the surrounding landscape. 
Its historic walls have seen invasion, capture, plague, famine, and numerous personal tragedies, many of which live on as ghostly legends still told today. The recorded history of Loftus Hall and the land upon which it sits stretches back some 800 years, but locals say the significance of the site goes back thousands of years and was once sacred to the Druids, the high-ranking professional and religious class in ancient Celtic cultures. The story of Loftus Hall begins around 1170 AD when Raymond Redmond Fitzgerald, nicknamed Le Grosse or The Fat, landed at Bagenbun Head in the Hook Peninsula in what is now the country of Wexford in Ireland. It's a famous site in Irish history known as the place where Ireland was lost and won. Raymond was among the first of a small band of Norman knights who played an active role in helping enforce normal rule over Ireland. He acquired land in the area, upon which he built a castle known as Houseland Castle. Over the years, it fell into disrepair, and in 1350, descendants of Raymond Le Gros built a new castle called the Hall of Redmond Hall. The hall remained with the Redmond family until the mid-1600s, when the Irish Confederate Wars saw the castle repeatedly attacked and eventually seized as part of the Cromwellian confiscations. In one remarkable display of defense, on the 20th of July, 1642, Alexander Redmond, who was 68 at the time, managed to protect the hall from around 90 English invaders with just the help of his two sons, some tenants, two soldiers, and a tailor. They staved off several more attacks after which Alexander Redmond received favorable terms from Cromwell. Upon his death around 1651, Redmond's family were evicted from the hall and their home put up for auction. In 1666, Henry Loftus, originally from Yorkshire, England, acquired the confiscated lands and the mansion was renamed Loftus Hall. Over the decades and centuries that followed, the Loftus family rose in the peerage, producing barons, viscounts, earls, and marquesses, and as they climbed the ladder of aristocracy, the illustrious family hoped they could entice Queen Victoria to visit. With that goal in mind, John Henry Loftus, the fourth Marquess of Ely, embarked on an enormous renovation of the hall between 1870 and 1879 to make it grander than ever before. Although it is widely reported that Loftus Hall was completely demolished and rebuilt, there is evidence that much of the former hall was utilized and worked into the mansion that can be seen today. No expense was spared in the renovation of Loftus Hall. Erected as a three-story mansion with a balustraded parapet, the hall boasts an ornate mosaic floor and a spectacular grand staircase, hand-carved by Italian craftsmen. The house certainly was fit for a queen. But Queen Victoria never arrived, causing deep disappointment to the Loftus family. While its rich and colorful past is enough to bring history's buffs flogging, it is the legends, the unexplained mysteries, and the tales of ghostly apparitions that have made Loftus Hall one of the most visited mansions in the whole of Ireland. The legends stem from the real life and death of Anne Tottenham. 
In the mid-1600s, Charles Tottenham married the Honorable Anne Loftus, daughter of the first Viscount Loftus, and they had six children, four boys and two girls, Elizabeth and Anne. But his wife became ill and died while the girls were still young. Two years later, Tottenham married his cousin, Jane Cliff, and they lived together along with Anne in Loftus Hall. One night, amid a powerful storm, a ship arrived at the Hook Peninsula and a young man made his way to Loftus Hall, asking if he could take shelter there. It was not uncommon for strangers to come knocking, as the rough waters around the South Wexford coast often resulted in ships being grounded on the shore or shattered by rocks. The man was invited in and ended up residing at the house for several weeks. During this time, Anne, now a young woman, fell in love with the stranger and spent countless hours socializing with him in the tapestry room. According to local legends, one evening Anne was playing cards with the stranger as well as other guests when she leaned down under the table to collect a card she had dropped and noticed that the stranger had cloven hoofs. She screamed loudly, causing the stranger to expose himself as the devil. He transformed into a ball of fire and shot up through the roof, leaving Anne in a state of trauma from which she never recovered. Anne's mental state deteriorated rapidly, and her family, embarrassed by her behavior, confined her to a room in the house where she remained until her death in around 1775. It is said that from this time onwards, Loftus Hall became plagued by severe poltergeist activity the troubled Anne never able to rest in peace. Several Protestant clergymen were summoned by the family to put a stop to it, but none could rid the house of its evil forces. In their desperation, the family, themselves Protestant, called upon a Catholic priest who was a tenant on their estate, Father Thomas Broders, who was successful in cleansing the house of negative forces. It is popularly reported that his gravestone contains the inscription, Here lies the body of Thomas Broders, who did good and prayed for all, and who banished the devil from Loftus Hall, though there is no evidence that this inscription ever existed. It is fair to say that many of the details of this account are likely to be little more than fictional folktales. Nevertheless, reports going back over a century say that Anne was indeed confined to a room in Loftus Hall until her death. So what really happened to her? It is most likely that the account of the cloven hoof and the devil shooting through the roof was made up by the Loftus family to deter beggars and other strangers from paying a visit to the hall. After all, they were desperately hoping to entice Queen Victoria for a visit, so the last thing they needed was undesirables getting in the way. This then raises the question as to whether Anne really was confined due to mental illness, or whether there was another reason for this tragic ending to her life. According to one alternative account, the stranger had fallen in love with Anne and had asked Charles Tottenham for her hand in marriage, but was refused permission. He was turned away from the house, leaving Anne heartbroken. But there is another twist in this story. During the restoration of Loftus Hall, the skeletal remains of a tiny infant were found between the walls in what is believed 
to have been the room Anne had been locked in. Did Anne fall pregnant with the stranger, casting shame upon her family? This could have provided a motive for her father to lock her away, never to be seen again. One local account suggests that Anne died during childbirth after her father refused to let anyone know of her pregnancy, including the local doctor, and she suffered complications leading to her death. Today, Anne Tottenham's grave is located in a local graveyard in Wexford, but something is very peculiar about it. Unlike the surrounding graves, it is completely cemented over. The people that buried her clearly wanted to ensure no one could ever access her body. What dark secrets did Anne take with her to the grave? Metaphorically, Loftus Hall is indeed haunted by its dark and troubled history. One can almost feel the sadness and traumas that have taken place within its walls. But does the ghost of Anne still roam the cold and empty rooms of the mansion as it stands today? Many are convinced the answer is yes. Indeed, American ghost hunters carried out detailed investigations of the house and claimed to have detected numerous anomalies. But it was in 2014 that Loftus Hall cemented its reputation as the most haunted house in Ireland when a visitor taking a tour believed that he captured a haunting image on his camera. It subsequently went viral, attracting the attention of people all around the world. 21-year-old Thomas Beavis said he was browsing through the photos on his camera when he noticed the ghostly figures of a young woman and an older woman in a window. In the early 20th century, the Loftus family went bankrupt, and following the death of the last member of the Loftus family, it was taken over by the Benedictines, who occupied it until 1935. In 1937, the Sisters of Providence converted it into a convent and school for young girls wanting to join the order. Locals say that people were terrified to attend Mass in its chapel, giving the well-circulated legends of the devil himself visiting the hall. In 1983, Loftus Hall was purchased by Michael Duvereau, who opened it as Loftus Hall Hotel. Michael died in the hall and his wife struggled for several years trying to run the hotel on her own, until one night she took off without any explanation, leaving everything behind. Loftus Hall then entered another dark period. The property was left vacant but was occupied illicitly for nearly a decade by people conducting satanic rituals and meetings. In 2011, it was purchased by its current owners, the Quigley family, who have embarked on an ambitious project of restoration. Today, Loftus Hall is open to the public, who can join a 45-minute guided tour that showcases the history of the hall and its many legends. Leaving the hall after one of these tours, one is left with more questions than answers. Fact and fiction have become so closely entwined in the history of Loftus Hall that it is impossible to determine where history ends and the legend begins. Do you have a dark tale to tell? 
Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all your social media. Tell your friends about the show via text and email. Leave a rating and review on the podcast as well. I might read your review here on the show. ACM 1976 in the U.S. said, Great production and content. A really enjoyable podcast. Great production quality and narration. Interesting stories. A great late-night listen. Highly recommended. Thanks, ACM 1976. Uh, Miss Riggs in the U.S. says, Great show. I've only been listening a few days, but I already know I'm hooked. Love the show and find all of them so interesting. I even got my sister hooked so that we can discuss. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Miss Riggs. You know, I do have to say I love hearing when couples, families, or groups are listening together. I wish I could actually be a fly on the wall watching as people interact with each other listening to it. So thank you very much, by the way, for sharing the show with your sister. I appreciate it. And then Bridget says, Pen Pal, I've been listening to your podcast for several months. Most of your stories are just the right amount of scary. But no story affected me to write a review until Pen Pal. O-M-G. <laughs> Spellbounding, horrible, scary, mysterious, everything in one story. What the hell, dude? That was so awesome. I am hooked. Please keep them coming. Signed, Bridget. Now, I will admit uh, Pen Pal was a very fun one to narrate, uh, but it took me forever. It wore me out because it is a long one. I think it's like two and a half hours long. So, I'm really glad you liked the episode, though. I, I appreciate that, Bridget. Uh, if you, uh, for, for those of you listening who have not heard Pen Pal, I will place a link directly to that episode in the show notes if you're interested in giving it a listen. Also, as I was recording today's podcast, I got a really nice email from Allison. She said, Hi, Darren. I just wanted to commend you on your excellent podcast, Weird Darkness. I only just came across your show a couple of months ago, but I really feel that listening to you narrate stories adds value to my day. Other shows in the same genre don't even compare to yours. You have the best voice and great narrative skill, which includes pronunciation, timing, and presence, and you always give credit to your sources. Every time I tune in, it feels as if I'm catching up with an old friend. Keep up the great work, Darren. Your commitment, talent, and professionalism really shine through. Best regards, signed, Allison. Man, I love emails. Thank you, thank you very much, Allison. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, I do have to, uh, I do have to agree with you when it when it comes to catching up with an old friend. I actually call people here the weirdo family, and I truly believe that people who are listening in and uh, sharing it with others, uh, you are, you're not just listeners and fans to me. You really are friends and family. Because I could not do any of this without all of you. And in fact, this is the only that you are the only reason that I do this. Yeah, if I didn't get the feedback that I get from you with emails and reviews and stuff like that, I probably wouldn't keep doing it. Even I mean, I, it's nice to see the links and the downloads, but the the actual feedback, the personal feedback, that really makes a huge difference. So thank you everybody for uh, sending stuff in. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. Right now, only patrons can watch the Weird But True episodes 
the giant Robert Wadlow, tallest man on Earth, which I just posted today for the patrons, and also Freaky Ways 15 Famous People Died, both of those right now only for patrons. Uh, the newest public episode that just came uh, public is called New York's Forgotten Island, and you can watch that now, anybody can watch that now, on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content, such as chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Uh, I'm also currently narrating the audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and I have narrated a few more chapters this week trying to catch up on lost time. Uh, you can hear all the chapters starting with Chapter 1 and the rest of them as I record them when you become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Vanished Crew of the Carol A. Deering was written by Madeline Noah. Night Watcher was posted at GhostsAndGhouls.com. Unexplained Encounters with Invisible Barriers was written by Ellen Lloyd. The Death of Virginia Rapp and the Trial of Fatty Arbuckle was written by Gina DeMuro and The Most Haunted House in Ireland was written by Joanna Gillen. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadow Symphony, and you can find links to both in the show notes. Also on the website WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, you can follow me on social media, you can join the Weirdo Family community. You can also see where I'm going to be on location in the future, which is a pretty blank uh, calendar at the moment, but I just got off the phone with... Uh, my my agent uh, earlier today, and he really wants me to do Weird Darkness Live somewhere, so we'll, we'll be working on that and figure out where we're going to do it. Uh, also on the uh, page labeled Weird Web, on the website you can get stories that I didn't use in the podcast, fan art, uh, pictures that weirdos like you send in to me, whether it be photos or drawings, paintings, whatever. Uh, there's also a weekly zombie comic strip called uh, Zomics that I post there on as well. A lot of stuff there. There's something every single day at WeirdDarkness.com. And now that we are coming to the end of this episode and stepping out of the dark, remember, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.